Welcome, I'm Julie Bacon, and you're listening to the Mindset Coaching for Handlers podcast, a podcast for dog handlers who are on a mission to achieve big goals. I will share lessons, insights, personal stories, and tools you can apply during your next show, trial, or test to help you strengthen your mental game and hopefully cue more consistently. So if you are ready to improve your competitive mindset, get out of your own way, and connect with your dog like never before, then it's time to get comfy, bring an open mind, and work your mindset. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. All right, this week we have a special event. And by that, I mean we have a special workshop event that I conducted in the Q membership in June. And we have a special guest, Lizzie LaRock, who joined us to talk about the power of good stress and how we can really use stress or ring nerves or what have you, whatever you call stress, ring nerves, anxiety, fear, um, maybe just good old pressure um, to your advantage. I call it kind of the Goldilocks effect, right? You don't want too much. You don't want too little. It's got to be just right. But there's a way that stress can actually help us perform better. It actually helps us focus. And Lizzie LaRock, who is a just powerhouse in positive psychology and really understands how to work with this, she's my coach. And you will get to listen in on the workshop that was done last month in the Q membership. We did it as a live Zoom call. So everybody got to ask questions and and it got to be interactive. So you're going to hear all of that. Um, It probably will be a little choppy at the end as I cut out some of the question and answer part of it. So excuse the editing uh, at the end, but enjoy this very special episode. We'll get started. And um, yeah, we are recording it in case you just had that message pop up and so that it'll be in your library with all of your other lessons. Um, so that you can listen, watch again in the future. And um, anyone who's coming in late will get to watch the whole thing. So um, yeah, so this is kind of a, just a really cool special workshop that we were able to do. Um, Lizzie and I have known each other, I think since 2017, maybe, I think. (laughs) And um, got introduced because, and I was trying to remember this correctly today, actually, is because we have a mutual friend who I knew when I was a kid and she was mentioning that she was working with like a coach at the time. And I was like, Oh, who? And she's like, Oh, it's this person I went to school with and ended up being Lizzie. And then we got introduced that way. And then I ended up doing some work for that friend and working with Lizzie. And so all kind of interrelated. And, um, but it was for me, I don't know if how it was for Lizzie, but for me, it was like a fast love, um, connection. And so we've gotten a chance to work together a few times and she's really helped me build this business and really focus on it for myself and for you all. And so there's a lot of things like the membership itself that you can credit Lizzie with, um, kind of being the inspiration and pushing me to do that. And so, um, that's great, but there are also, um, times where, um, um, sometimes we get on a call and we just talk about mindset because I'm in like kind of a crappy place. And so that was, as I said, that was sort of the impetus of this is that I was like, oh my God, people need this. Like, like this is important. Um, and, uh, so we kind of talked about doing this and that's how this was born is just, you know, trying to make sure that we can get ourselves, 
um, back into positive places when we need to. And Lizzie will tell you better than I can introduce her, like how that's kind of her special sauce. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm Julie. I'm sorry to be over here. <laughs> Guys, can I interrupt I, for a second? Oh, yeah. yeah. But um, there's a, kind of a little bit of a chat in the. Um... Yep, I see it. I'll take care of it. Okay, I got it. I didn't know if you wanted to throw the link over there or not. Yep, I will. I got okay. it. Thanks. Oh, I don't see anything in the chat. Uh, it's in uh, it's in the messenger. messenger. Yep. Oh, okay. I was yep. so if you see me looking down, I'm looking down at my screen to do exactly that. So thank you. So I will just I'll share a couple of funny things. I think um, so. Our friend, our mutual Julie, and I grew up in the same area outside of Detroit, and we didn't we didn't actually know each other growing up. But oh. these we have several mutual friends who who Julie knew from the the horse world, who I had gone to school with. Um, and was really close friends with. And so one of them in particular, I think um, Weatherly had sent out in her newsletter something about her coach, like kicking her butt. And <laughs> Julie was like, I need that. Come, you know, loving, lovingly butt kicking. And then it happened to be that you had just moved to Colorado where I live. So she actually came up and stayed with me and poor Julie stayed with me like two days after I had had LASIK eye surgery that didn't go that well. And I was in, I remember my eyeballs just burning out of my head and Julie stayed with me. And we went to see um, Pam Houston, the author who we had a, a mutual love, yeah. love. I have a total girl crush on Pam Houston. Yeah. So poor Julie, I think you even had to like drive us. I was like, I can't even really see. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here with my eyes closed. So that yeah, was, uh, that did not go well for you. My God. Yeah, no, but I had so much fun having you, having you visit and we have been friends ever since. So, um, so I will say that I came to, um, I also know Ruth in here. Ruth has, has worked with me a little bit. I, I, I think Julie and I had shared in the email today that um, we had a funny experience during the pandemic where, where Ruth would, attended one of my classes outside in a sleeping bag to <laughs> get out of her house and away from the noise and, and people. And, uh, you know, we were working on all our positive psychology things. So well, I and specifically photography stuff. So there, it's like a great meld, which is Ruth's love and passion in the photography yes. world. So yes, I think at that time though, when it was, can I swear on here or should I? Yes. Okay. As I I that, when the <laughs> shit was hitting the fan of the pandemic, we were like, I don't know what we're talking about. We we just need some resilience here and some uplifting, uh, uplifting things. So. I come to this work of positive psychology from, you know, positive psychology, I like to say is it's the science of flourishing and of optimal living. And it's kind of a perfect um, segue into coaching. Coaching is a really great application of it because it's not about the psychology of, you know, your whole history and trauma and childhood and past events. It's more about moving forward and how do you optimize in life. But I like to say that we give ourselves full permission to be human in positive psychology, that it isn't about, you know, it's not this superficial happyology. It is about resilience. It's about being able to bend instead of break when adversity strikes. 
And it's about just prioritizing what's good in life because we, as Julie, you know, explains many times in your work that we're so um, good at looking for what's wrong or being in kind of our survival-based fear, stress response. So um, I actually, my background is before I got into coaching, I actually owned a restaurant for for 14 years. So if you could imagine anything like more stressful performance-based work, that's that's probably one of the top ones of of having to be on and having a whole lot of of pressure. So, um, and it was... uh, yeah, it was a very difficult time. Like every, every cliche you think of with restaurant life is probably true times a million percent. And so when I, when I left the restaurant um, world, I got into coaching and got certified in positive psychology. And so now I coach clients one-on-one. I lead creativity workshops online that Ruth and Julie are part of, and I do corporate workshops as well and some public speaking. So that's a little bit about me. I am going to share my screen Um, and this can be, I don't know what Julie had in mind, but you guys can, I can be a fire hose at times. So you can interject, (laughs) ask questions, do what you need to. My husband was telling me this morning as I was like, Oh, I gotta, you know, I'm so excited to do this. I was like, well, make sure like you tend to give a lot. So if we need time to digest, just just let me know. But I get very excited about all of this work. And you've already seen, um, I hopefully saw in the emails today, my, our, our Samoyed or Samoyed, uh, Luna. And I told Julie, I was like, this is, this picture is from a few years ago. She has a really bad haircut right now. And, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to embarrass <laughs> myself with pro-level dog people here of, of our <laughs> crazy looking fluff ball, but that's, <laughs> That's Luna. So I love to start any talk out on stress with like a humiliating story about myself. So I hope that's, that works for you all. Uh, But I think it's a really good example of, of performance, anxiety, ring nerves, and all, you know, all the ways that this can manifest in our life. So about eight or nine years ago, I think it was, I decided when my twins were uh, like, you know, younger that I, one of them was quitting piano and I decided to take her place in piano lessons. It had been this big regret of mine in life, quitting piano as a kid. And so I wanted to take lessons and our piano teacher insisted that I be a part of the spring piano recital that I was somewhat against. And I am by no means any kind of amazing piano player like this. I didn't leave off at some high level. (laughs) Like it was, I was pretty bad. And um, so when, when he said that, you know, he wanted me to be in the spring recital, I was like, all right, I'll do it. But I do love theater and singing and performing. And I like kind of um, with some of you that dog handling maybe is a passion and not a profession, like on the side, I participate in this annual cabaret thing in my town where I get to pretend I'm a rock star. This is me 
parodying mom life to Bon Jovi songs. Um, I think it was about how awful carpooling was. We did like this living on a prayer to this parking lot is a nightmare. And so this is, this is something that clearly, as you can see in this photo, like I enjoy and am in my element and it's a highly stressful performance. I actually just finished this year's last week. We have like one, like one week to learn like 11 different skits and songs. I write for it. I direct in it. I perform in other people's skits. You have like zero time to practice. You perform in front of 200 people a night, um, two shows a night for, for three days. So six shows in a row. So high, high, high performance stress, right? Um, so two, so years ago, eight years ago, two weeks after this particular cabaret performance was the damn piano recital. Now on the flip side, the piano recital, my part of it is like three minutes long. I probably had four months to practice, which I did not. And, um, <laughs> and it's in a, a, a church of I live in a small town. So ironically, it's a lot of the same people who would have been at the cabaret performance, but I am the only adult in this scenario, right? It's all small children. So I, as the piano recital had a snafu where like the violin group um, got delayed and everything got delayed and I'm sitting there in this church and I just start breaking out into a cold sweat and my hands are sweating and I'm getting more and more nervous as, as my time gets up there. And I'm thinking because there had been this delay, more and more parents are showing up for like the guitar recital after and the singing one. So it's not just our little piano group. So I'm, I'm, and I'm, my thoughts are just, I'm such a loser. Like I am the only adult here and this is going to go so badly, which guess what? It did go really <laughs> badly. <laughs> So I'm going to play, we'll play this little snippet so we can all live through the visceral humiliation. Um, it's just a couple of tough minute or two long. Can you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, it's bad. <laughs> Like, gets worse, Kim. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> Here comes Paul to try to save me. I'm impressed you got up there and did it. I am so impressed. Like, painful. Okay, so I, I got a lot of cheers for people feeling so sorry for me. So how do you go from like this to this in two weeks, right? Like this is within the same month. I am the same person. This is much harder to execute 
and this, then, then this. So I like to share that to just show that like, you know, this is, this is what happens when we get in our own way and we get in our own heads about a, a situation, right? Like with the cabaret, I'm thinking, my stuff is so funny. People are going to love this. This is so amazing. This is so joyful. And the piano recital, I'm thinking this is humiliating. I'm the only adult here. I didn't practice enough. I'm exhausted from the cabaret thing. I'm going to bomb this. And then I did. <laughs> so um, if you, if you've ever experienced that, you can see, but at least a whole bunch of people were watching. So stress, I like to say is, um, and oh, actually, I don't like to say this comes from Kelly McGonigal. She's a stress researcher out of Stanford, and she has a book called The Upside of Stress. And what she tells us is that we tend to think, you know, we've been told kind of by society that stress in all forms is just terrible for us. It's going to cause cardiovascular disease. We're all going to die from it. And this is a terrible thing where stress is, as Kelly explains, it is the physiological response that we have in our body when something we care about is at stake. And that quite frankly, in both of those instances, I was probably having similar stress responses, like heart rate, you know, palms, all of that. And in one, my mindset is like, I am so excited for this and rising to this challenge. And the other one is like, I wish there was an escape hatch in this piano bench so that I could flee this scene immediately. Right. Like, like, like what happened? How did I bomb this that, that badly? And, you know, really, so, as I said, so much of that comes from what I was thinking and interpreting the physiological response. Like if you say that stress is sort of this neutral neutral thing that's happening in our body, you know, if you interpret it as it's, you're going down in, in flames, you, you will go down in flames. It becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's also that, you know, we have other stress responses, right. That we might be our go-to of like ready to fight someone. And this is that overreactive zone that we might get into. And so I like to say that if we, if we have this just limited repertoire of stress responses of fight, flight, or freeze, then, you know, we, we can't eliminate all stress in our life and stress does signify what is meaningful to us, right? Like it is a part of the achievement and the goal setting that you guys do within the, the dog world. So we don't want to be swimming in this belief system that stress is going to take us down and we have to eliminate it because life has its ups and downs. I always say like life is going to get all lifey on us in a, in a hot second, but it stress is a bit of this paradox. So it can debilitate your stress, right? Like we're not meant to be in this fight or flight thing for, for long periods of time, you know, it was meant for us to escape a, a tiger, you know, not to like hang out with a tiger forever and ever, you know, roller coasters are not supposed to last forever. You know, you're, you're supposed to come back down to a, a baseline level. And in a lot of our modern day life, like our stressors at home, like we never come back down to, to baseline. So, so stress, yeah, stress can be debilitating to, to your health. But it also just 
it, the paradox piece is that it can be channeled, you know, all of that focus and, you know, psychological focus can be used to help you perform better. Does, does that, that make sense? I'll say that, you know, Beyonce says it very well. She has a quote. I think it's healthy for a person to be nervous. It means that you care, that your hard work, that you work hard and you want to give a great performance. You just have to channel that nervous energy into the show, right? So you don't want to go the piano route <laughs> with it. You want to be going the, the mock star Bon Jovi route. Anyone, I'm going to pause for a minute. Anyone have any questions about this so far or insights? No. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm going to share with you guys a couple of different studies, but one, one that I think is pretty funny. And this guy up in the corner, this is this guy, Joe Pete. He used to own the restaurant that, that I owned, um, before I did. And he is a pretty famous skydiver and he's set world records and he's got, you know, hundreds of people in the air. Like he's an amazing skydiver. I don't know these people, these people I found on the internet, but there were <laughs> studies out of the university of new Orleans that measured the heart rate of skydivers of whether or not they were seasoned sky of both seasoned skydivers and brand new skydivers. And what they found is that their physiological responses were pretty much exactly the same, but the seasoned skydiver interprets, you know, cannonballing out of a, out of an airplane to be exciting. And a newbie might be interpreting that as terrifying and not wanting to. And I think that that's really an interesting juxtaposition that, that this anxiety and excitement can coexist and they can feel the same in our body, but our interpretation is what really makes the difference. And they actually, in these studies, they found that the season skydivers sometimes had an even more increased stress response than the newbie ones that they were more revved up and like, yeah, you know, to, to get out there. And so when we think of like, we have the fight, flight, fight or flight stress response, this is what they would call the excite and delight that, you know, you don't, we don't have to think of stress always as this, just, as I said, detrimental thing that there's also the excite and delight response. So as you can gather, you know, this is just about how do we, how do we crush it <laughs> rather than crash under pressure? So on this same, you know, kind of trajectory of the excite and delight, there was a research study um, from a Harvard researcher named Jeremy Jameson. And what he had noticed was that with his students, with like the college students, that the athletes would get like, like football players, for example, would get super amped up before a big game, right? They're like, yeah, woo, woo. Oh, that's my imitation of a football player. <laughs> um, th 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 these same athletes, when they would be in an exam, when they would feel that amped up, they would interpret it as panic and that they were going to bomb the test. And so he found it really fascinating and decided to do some, some stress tests on these. And what they did was they took students who were going to be taking the, um, the GRE, the graduate requisite exam, and they took a practice, uh, a practice exam 
setting and they had um they had the research groups and what they did was they gave half the group like a pep talk about the meaning of stress and how stress when you feel kind of that anxiety and things that your your blood vessels like all of your organs are coming together to give you the resources and the focus the psychological focus to do better, to perform better. So half the group gets this stress is actually here to help you pep talk. And the other half doesn't. And when they took the, the GRE practice exam, the group that had gotten the, um, the pep talk outperformed by like over 50 points. And then they actually even followed up six months later with the real exam when they were taking the actual GRE and the group that had had the like positive stress pep talk had still exceeded the, um, the other, the other group, they actually exceeded even more. I don't know what the percentage was in that one, but they did better on the, on the exam. And so in the, in the test, they even had the, everyone do like spit cortisol tests because they wanted to make sure that, um, the pep talk in and of itself wasn't calming them down, right? Like that's kind of what we believe at times of like, oh, I just need to calm down. I just need to, you know, get myself in this meditative state. And when they did the cortisol test, they they found that no, the the people with the positive pep talk were just having just as much stress hormones as the other group, but they were able to channel this into what researchers call the challenge response. So instead of being in that threat response, they're rising to the challenge. Does that, does that clear kind of mind blowing? I don't know if anyone's heard some of these before, but this is this is if you if you have I, I was like I gotta tell this would have been really helpful because not only did I bomb a piano recital I just, was not the best SAT taker either so anything involving a number, anything involving a number two pencil brought me a lot of anxiety in in life so I think that that's really fascinating I used to work for a mindfulness company and I teach a lot of mindfulness and I'm a big believer in it and I love like how within the Q coach membership you guys have a week of breath work and learning those ways to to calm your nervous system down because it is so important to have that that reset point but it's but it's not necessarily that in the moment going out into the ring that you have to be like the, the most zened out version of yourself. Like sometimes you can actually be too chill. <laughs> and I'll say this is because I live in a ski resort and I used to own a restaurant, but like this person, this fictitious photo I found, like you'd be like, Hey, yeah, no, we got to step it up here. We gotta, you know, we, we can't be go this far into our stress continuum where we're just in the freak out zone, but we also can't be in the totally so chill. We can't get anything done zone either. So that's, you know, like when we're in this area and much of what we hear about stress in, in, you know, magazines and articles that we might read is more about distress than actually channeling the, the stress. So I like to make that distinction and to know too, that in the, in the dog handling world, right? Like, like 
the level of excitement that a football player's got to rev up to go just use brute force and tackle people is probably going to be too much right? for, the, for the precision and, you know, working with the relationship with your, your dog. So, and like, like if you're just like golf, for example, right? Like, like Tiger Woods is, is not like, Oh, right. Like, like there's, there's a little, a little nuance with how much, how much excitement. And that's kind of your own, as an athlete, your own knowledge of, of what you need to get revved up. But I used to say like in the restaurant world, like some of our worst nights of customer service were not when we were so slammed that we were so busy. It was when we were slow and people just weren't on their game and kind of not paying attention. Um, so these are my, these are my twins. (laughs) This is my example of like rising to the challenge and being, you know, out of your comfort zone and having a great time and being out of your comfort zone and being miserable. (laughs) (laughs) So this, this comfort zone, this was me learning to wake surf, um, in 2020 in the, in the pandemic summer. And I did, I thought I was going to like careen right into the back of the boat. Cause that's what wake surfing feels like. Um, (laughs) So so in this, these are my twins, like who's having a great time? Like, and, and back to the piano example, like me on stage in the mock star having the time of my life versus looking miserable. And like, I'm taking myself way too seriously <laughs> right? In, in these moments. So this is important. Um, I, do you, Julie, do you guys talk about the flow state? Have you talked about the flow state in here? We do. We do. We've talked about it in terms of flow. Some other language we've used are like getting in the zone because it's kind of an athlete term yeah. that we borrowed. I've called it like for me personally, it's like the Goldilocks problem yes. uh, because to me too, like if I'm too relaxed and terrible and if I'm too amped up or revved or nervous or whatever it is, like that's not good either. And I've also talked about like, everybody needs to find their own, like what's good for me is not good for somebody else, yeah. right? There's too much for somebody else. Um, and I also liken it to like me as a kid, like always waiting to the last minute to do reports and stuff too, because that was me. I needed a certain amount of like push because if I had three weeks to do something, I was like, oh, please, yeah. I've got like two weeks, six days, you know, 23 hours left. Come on. You know? So, um, that was not helpful for me. So yeah. So we, we've talked about it in kind of those terms. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that you already talk about it. And so one of the, one of the founding people of positive psychology is this guy, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was the one who originally coined the term and did the initial research around the flow state of this, you know, feeling of being in the zone. And what I, I, I love that what, you know, what he says about the flow state is being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. Your ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement, and thought follows inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. Your whole being is involved and you're using your skills to the utmost. And he actually, some of his original studies were from studying jazz musicians of, you know, that they're not planned out all their musical notes. They're riffing off of each other. They're improv. They're in that moment, you know, really present and, you know, coming up with these cool beats. Um, you can tell I'm not really a jazz. I don't have the jazz lingo 
school beats. <laughs> um, but it, but what I what they also found and I thought was really fascinating is that when the jazz musicians were in a flow state, their inner critic actually quiets down. And they found that their part of their brain, their, their dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for like being weight, the, the piano recital voice, right? Like the one that's way too self-conscious and cognizant of how you look in the world is quiets down. Like, as he says, the ego falls away. So when you meet that Goldilocks, just right challenge amount, you don't even have to try to quiet your inner critic. It shuts up on its own because they say it's actually like an energy exchange in the different parts of your brain. Like it uses up too much energy to riff and hear all those notes and be fully present. You don't have enough room in that moment to also be critiquing and overthinking what you're doing. So it's, it's like one of the easiest way to just shut that inner, inner mean girl up, <laughs> which I have mine's way too vocal at times. And I like to say, you know, it's like playing tennis, you know, if you were to play tennis with a four-year-old and you're just like, okay, this is way too easy, right? This isn't even fun. The four-year-old's not volleying back versus playing tennis with Serena Williams, who's like hitting 90 mile an hour balls at your head and you're fearing for your life. So there's, you know, you, you want to, your skills need to match the challenge and the challenge needs to be slightly outside of your skill set to in order to have you be fully engaged and the better you get at something the more you have to kind of like increase the challenge to get you back into that flow state right like if something you know just feels like you could do it with your eyes closed or in your sleep it you you're not you're no longer in the flow state either you're not as engaged in that, in that piece. Um, so when we talk about stress and how stress affects us and mindsets, you'll want to, this is actually one of my, one of my favorite studies. And since, um, Julie was eating an ice cream popsicle before I'll, I think this will be a good one to share with you guys, but really like the, the science shows that our mindset matters and it does influence our physiological response and our physiological response also it's like bi-directional right it also influences how we we think about something which you know why like if you've ever been in a terrible mood and then you've gone and exercised and felt better like you know that that's where that can happen so this is a study that was out of Yale from a woman named Aliyah Crum. And she did this study where they had these milkshakes and they had a, a group to come in and taste test these milkshakes. And once again, they were actually testing. They had like, you know, IVs set up to test blood and test all the hormonal responses. And what they were looking for was um, this hormone that suppresses your appetite called ghrelin, or that signifies that you've had enough to eat. And so they had these milkshakes. The first week, the group came in and they get the sense, I think it was called like the sense shake. And it was like a really healthy, low-cal shake that they all had. And then they 
go home. And the next week, a week later, they come in and they get a different milkshake. They get a totally indulgent, high calorie, delicious, and the milkshakes have been, you know, described to them. So they, they know what they're getting. And when they, when they looked at the blood tests and to measure this ghrelin, exactly what the scientists thought would happen, happened when the people ate the drank the, um, the locale shake, their ghrelin, I think their, their ghrelin didn't go down. Like it, it signified that they weren't satisfied and they, they were still hungry. And when they had the really indulgent high calorie shake, their, their ghrelin signified that they were satiated and that they had had enough. And what was fascinating about the study is that what the science, the, you know, the scientists revealed was that the milkshakes were exactly the same. And that the only thing that was different were the labels on them of saying that one week it was the sensa shake and the next week it was the indulgent shake. The, so it's, it's fascinating that they were, you know, measuring this, like when we think we're, I was like, maybe our local ice cream shop can like <laughs> label everything as, as locale and I'll just be good to go to, to eat them. <laughs> So, you know, when you think about in science, you know, they have like the placebo effect. The placebo effect has been used to, you know, make sure that medication works. And it's like, I mean, it's something like 70% of placebos that work. Like our brain is, is convinced that it's going to help us, in, you know, a sugar pill pill. And they've also found studies of like the reverse placebo where they can actually induce a rash with fake poison ivy in people that it's, we really, so I hope that stands as my convincing piece of, you know, our mindset does matter. So what, what Julie teaches you, what you work on here is really affects, you know, how you interpret your stress and how that stress can or cannot help you in, in all this. I'll pause again, just to give myself water, see if anyone, Julie, any. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, heard? I think it's, it's super powerful. The other thing I was going to say earlier is uh, I think also part of the flow and part of getting into this moment where you can either work on your mindset or get out of your own way and perform really has a home in like getting present. And so when we talk of when I, when I, when I push meditation or breath work or mindfulness, you know, a lot of that is to remind us to get back into the present because worry is in the future and you're, you know, maybe an experience, a previous experiences in the past and like, you know, really like getting in the moment that is now and, and bringing your mindset work and all of your tools with you, that that's where you can do something about it. You know, like that's where you have the power. Yeah. And developing that practice outside of the panic state, right? So where you're, yes. where you're developing all these skills and working on them so that when you are in the moment, they're much more accessible to you than if you just crammed them at, at the, at the last minute, like, you know, learning right. breathing for the first time, as soon as you're walking into the, the ring is not as efficacious as having the, the, the practice all along. Right. Um, Okay. Let's see. I want to show you 
Oh, so, so I want to show you a quick uh, little video on that note, but I'll just tell you. So one of the keys to when you're trying to change from that stress threat response to a challenge response is to, you know, reappraise the situation to let, tell yourself the, the, the stress hormones that you're feeling, the heart racing, all that, that, that these are, these are resources for your body to help you hyper-focus on, on something in the moment. Like you aren't daydreaming in the dog ring, right? Like when you're, when you're feeling safe at home and laying in the hammock, like that's when your mind wanders and you're thinking about a lot of other things, but your, your stress actually is helping you perform in the ring because it is helping you, you focus and it's, you know, giving you that activating energy to, to get the job done. As we said, we just don't want to dial it up so high that you go into the complete panic zone. And so one way to do that is, you know, to, to remind yourself of your resources of like, oh, I've, you know, practiced for this. I'm really skilled at this. This is where we've done well with this before. I've got this, you know, this like positive pep talk, as well as just the most simple phrase of saying like this kind of like the exam people with the GREs, like this means I'm, this matters to me. This means I care about it. This is, I'm excited to, to do this rather than I'm going to bomb, bomb this. Um, you know, I like to say we, we probably have enough fears in life. We don't need to feed more of them with our over. What is Julie? You said something great of like, worry is a terrible use of your imagination. Imagination. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's so awesome. Um, so I'm going to share just a little snippet from this guy, Andrew Huberman, that's he's out of Stanford about a breathing technique that you can use on the fly in, in the, the ring to get yourself like calmed down, um, and how he explains it. So I will share, let's see, I'm going to be mindful of time. It's, he calls this the physiological sigh. And I like to equate it of, you know, you can picture when he describes this in this video, of like a little kid doing this, this kind of little sniffle. Um, if, if that makes sense. So let me, this is actually what's happening oops. all the time. This is the basis. Can you guys hear that? Okay. All right. I'm going to play this a couple of minutes long. Heart rate variability. When people talk about heart rate variability is good, you know, that you don't want your heart rate to be one level all day, high or low. A lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, I got a nice slow heart rate. Well, slow heart rate is better than high heart, artificially high, you know, sorry, excessively high heart rate. But you don't want your heart rate to be like this. You want your heart rate to go through these fluctuations. Heart rate variability is good because heart rate variability reflects the activation of what's typically called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the brain's ability to slow down and calm the nervous system. So uh, when your heart rate is going like this, it means that your heart rate is speeding up and then your brain is slowing it down. Your heart rate is speeding it up and your brain is slowing it down. And that's what's happening all day long as you're moving through things in a kind of calm alert way. But when you get that troubling text message or you see a post or a comment and you go, and all of a sudden your heart rate just goes and you feel like you immediately want to respond or you're going to say the thing that maybe you shouldn't say or you're going to do the thing that maybe you shouldn't do <laughs> or you just want to be thought more thoughtful and more targeted in your response the key is to 
slow down the heart rate by making your exhales longer mm -hmm. or more vigorous. So it could simply be, and then shorter inhales, longer exhales, or do the physiological side. Or if you wake up in the morning and you're experiencing the other kind of stress, the world is overwhelming me. My life is overwhelming. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't even know what sequence I'm going to do things in. You're just discombobulated. And a lot of people struggle with this. The key is to do a few breaths, even while you're getting out of bed and, and preparing your morning coffee or water or whatever it is, and just start breathing in a way that's inhale emphasized, which Sounds weird, but basically what you're doing is you're speeding up your heart rate at some point, usually within only two or three of those breaths, you're going to feel more alert. And then wow. you can just go back to breathing normally. And while I'm a fan of breath work as its own thing, because breath work can teach you how to operate these levers in your brain and body, so to speak, breath work is a dedicated practice that you do away from these stressful events. Whereas learning to control your heart rate and thereby your mind using your breathing. So it goes breathing, heart rate, mind in that sequence. So if your mind isn't where you want it to be, don't start with the mind. Start with your breathing then, which will control your heart rate, which will then allow you to control your mind. I do believe that having that knowledge in the mind allows people in a moment of stress to say, oh, I understand what's happening to me and therefore I should go to this particular tool. Now you can do physiological size voluntarily anytime you're feeling too stressed and you want to feel more calm. You do it like this. So it's a double inhale. And typically the first inhale is longer than the second, but the second one is still important to do. And then a very long extended exhale. Typically both inhales are through the nose and the exhale is through the mouth. That's the most effective way to do the physiological sigh. However, you can't breathe through your nose or your mouth for whatever reason, do it all through your mouth or all through your nose. The second inhale is really important because your lungs are not just two big bags of air. They're two big bags of air with lots of little sacs, millions of sacs. And if you were to lay out those sacs, their volume is as big as a tennis court. And that allows both the intake of more oxygen, but also the offload of carbon dioxide. So when you do the double inhale, it reinflates any of these little sacs that have collapsed. And in doing so, it allows you to offload more carbon dioxide. So if you're feeling stressed in any circumstance, inhale twice through the nose and then exhale long through the mouth. If you want, you can repeat it a second or even a third time, but typically just one or two, maybe three physiological size are sufficient to bring your level of stress and alertness down very fast and allow you to feel more calm. So I was thinking we could just do a practice round of the physiological sigh, because this is the one that you could do. Like, like I taught this to our ski resort last year when I was like, yeah, if you're in the middle of a heated conversation with a customer and hospitality and stressful, like you might not be able to go do box breathing right in that moment, but you know, perhaps you could do a quick physiological sigh, which offloads that that stress as, as Andrew explains to, to get you in a more calm alert phase. So it is that, you know, slightly longer inhale through your nose, then a second shorter inhale, and then a longer exhale. So should we do a three, two, yeah. one? Yeah.
So I, I love that. It's like I said, that it's one that you can do on the fly. And really like when we talk about mindset and a lot of times we go to adjust the mindset before we've sort of recalibrated our nervous system. And it's sometimes can be like a fruitless effort. Um, so one thing, Wait, sorry, before you yes, leave that, yeah. sorry, Lizzie. So yeah, I, cause um, we've talked about a little bit of this at different points before, but I think what I like about this particular one is it sort of combines a couple of things for me. Um, in that, like, first of all, when we get stressed, sometimes our breathing, gets very shallow. So by doing the two breaths in, you are, I mean, and I didn't know that our cells are like a tennis court, like that was new information, um, but um, you are making sure that you are, if you will, fully inflated. You know, you're not using that, like I tend to breathe chest breathing. Like I know like people, breath work people tell me that. And so I know that, you know, breathing deeply is something I kind of forget to do. And then the other thing about the exhale is sometimes I will even picture like, literally blowing out whatever I want to get rid of, right? Oh, like whatever it that. is that, you know, again, might not happen in the ring, but I have done it or you see handlers do it actually. And they don't even do it. They're not even doing it necessarily intentionally, but they're like, they'll mess up and they'll go, you know, and it's just the body's way of like letting go of a mistake, something that just happened, a stress, whatever. And it is, kind of in, if you watch the world, it, it sort of happens involuntarily a lot. But I think when we do it in this conscious way, obviously it puts us back in control, tells our body that like we're in control of our breathing. Like there's so many great parasympathetic, parasympathetic um, things about it. Um, but yeah, that's definitely going in my personal repertoire. <laughs> okay, good. Yay. Yeah. And, and in the video, he explains as well, like, you know, little kids do this naturally, right? Is that's why you think they're like, you know, this like sobbing to, to calm themselves back down in, in that moment. Um, yeah. I love that you use it to be like, okay, breathing out this crap that I'm thinking in my head or whatever, you know, what, it, like this little pregame ritual of, of yeah. getting yourself ready for, for the challenge ahead. Um, I want to just touch on, and do you, can, do we, do we have a hard stop in seven minutes or is it okay to go over a little bit? We started a little late. Okay. Um, yeah, keep going. And those of you, if anyone needs to drop off because you've got a hard stop, don't worry. The replay will be available. We're recording it, yada, yada. So you'll get to see it. Don't feel bad. Just give us a wave and, and go do you, but yes, you're, you're free to go on. Okay, perfect. So I don't know about all of you, but as evidenced with that piano recital um, video, and I don't have every time my inner critic's been very loud on video, thank God, um, but it is frequent. And I like to say that we can do, you know, as we've all learned this super skill of social distancing of how can we give ourselves these in the moment pep talks and distance ourselves from our inner critic, right? Like how can we step six feet away from the, I call it the, the socially distant self pep talk. So in addition to just being like, you know, I'm rising to the challenge. My stress is here to make me better in this moment. It's not here to, to, to bring me down. You can also talk to yourself in the third person. And a lot of research studies have showed how that is more, you know, pretty effective as far as being like, you've got this Lizzie, like you, you have, you have strengths, you've done this well before, like you can, you can do this. 
rather than you over-identified, right? In that you're such a loser, you're going to bomb this, you're pathetic, this is going terribly, right? There's a, there's a difference in that, that pep talk. And we, um, I like to say, so one of my life feasters, when we did a big thing on inner critic, cause creativity brings up a lot of inner criticism. She had said, Oh, I named my inner critic Dwight from the office. And so she's like, nobody has any problem saying like, shut up Dwight. Like, so if your voice is going, Oh my stop, God, I love terrible. That. You know, you're like, the socially distanced, shut up, Dwight. And then what I like to say is you can invoke, oh, wait, I gotta, I gotta like play this for you. So, um, that oh, is funny. um, the, yeah. So, so then you can go to like, what is your, do you watch Ted Lasso? I, that's like, yes. like, I picture you've got Roy Kent giving Dwight, the ultimate smackdown in this, in this moment. And then you've got, you know, you want to be your inner Ted Lasso. Like, how can you tell yourself to believe, give yourself this, this pep talk? I have to just say a quick story. When I did this, um, hopefully she's not a dog handler, so she'll never listen to this recording, but the woman who was directing (laughs) our cabaret last week, like at, at, um, intermission, I was going to say halftime at intermission at one point, she was like berating at one of the shows. She was like berating the cast for not enough energy or not, not knowing their lines or whatever that was. And she said something about this was like her Ted Lasso talk. And I was like, have you ever watched Ted Lasso? Like his or very inspiring. This is not the same thing. Um, but that kind of goes with, with what I want to segue to of one of the, the couple of recovery tools that you guys might have, because obviously, you know, the piano recitals happen, shit happens. Like I could say that, you know, some of that was just my inner critic. Some of that was just my exhaustion from having done the, the, the other performance for, you know, really intensive period of time. And we tell ourselves that, you know, like, you know, we're, we like berate ourselves into being better. And so I want to go through a couple of recovery tools of like how you do want to bounce back from something that didn't go as well as you would, you would like. So this, um, I love this quote uh, from Kelly McGonigal and it's not in her upside of stress, but it's basically, um, what does she say? If you think that the key to greater willpower is being harder on yourself, you are not alone, but you are wrong. And I found that to be great. So she's written (laughs) books on willpower that we think that like, if we're going to do the diet or the exercise routine, like we're going to strong arm ourselves into doing it. And instead she cites quite a lot of research from Dr. Kristen Neff on self-compassion. And this sounds like a softer approach and we need to, you know, get our edge as, as athletes and competitors, but also to say, like, we are humans, we get permission to be human. And, and when we try to not be human, <laughs> right, like, we end up making, you know, just getting a lot of stuck stress and, and other I've had, I like I go to the chiropractor a lot from previous restaurant years of, of stuck stress of not acknowledging things that I was going through that held on in my in my body. Um, but Kristen Neff, you know, as I, as I say, like we have permission to be human, 
But remember too, like what she points out, she's a self-compassion researcher out of, of Stanford. And what she says is we are also mammals. So when you think about your, your dog and like, like that we respond to, to t- like touch, like our own hand on our heart to calm ourselves down. We respond to soft, you know, soft speaking, not like that kind of thing. And that these are some of the ways that we can recover from adversity a lot easier if we just give ourselves a little bit of self-compassion. And I like to think of it as like, you know, in therapy, they would talk about you can't hold a beach ball underwater for forever. You know, if you're trying to not acknowledge difficulties or things that, you know, sadness or any sort of difficult emotions, you're, it's like holding this beach ball underwater and you can't do it forever. It's gonna, it's gonna pop back up. So if you take just a few minutes to have a recovery, self-compassion practice that can help you quite a bit. So the three keys to it is the first being kindness to yourself of saying like, you know what, Lizzie, you were just tired. You were really tired at that piano recital. Like that was a crazy time in life and time of year and you were exhausted and you'd given it all to that other performance and you had, you had nothing left and, and that's okay. And then the second piece is to recognize that you aren't alone. And because a lot of times when we, we beat ourselves up after something, we tell her we have that, you know, fallacy that like, I'm the only one who sucks this badly in life. And so instead it's being like other people have had a humiliating experience before. I am not the only one who has been humiliated and, and, and that's okay. That actually connects me to more, more people. Right. If I, if I show up here, I used to say like, if I show up as like a combo of Giselle and Martha Stewart, like nobody wants to listen to me. Like my, vulnerabilities are what make me more relatable because we all have them rather than trying to, to show up perfect. And then the third key to Kristen F's self-compassion is to not be catastrophic, to be more balanced, to not, you know, say, Oh my God. And it was the biggest crisis in the world that I failed the piano recital, right. To be like, it's okay. What, whatever happened in the ring today, like it is not, it's not the end of, of the world. So those I find to be a really helpful practice for, for your recovery. I have, um, wait, can I um, ask one question? Yes. So, um, when, so I always talk a lot about like, one of the things we have to develop is like a self-awareness about when we're starting to get the feels or like this, right? We're either starting to feel stress instead of excitement or, you know, and then also self-awareness about like picking up when we start to be nasty to ourselves and like all of that. So I, I couch it as self-awareness, but how else, how else might you couch it or what other words might you use? Because like you have to, there's a point where you have to like see yourself almost from outside and realize that you're doing this thing because it is so, you know, some of these things are so habitual. We're in a habit of talking ourselves that way, or we're in a habit of saying like, oh, I just got to be more disciplined because that's what I learned as a kid. Or like, so how would you, like, how do you make sure that you're interrupting those things to get to this point? Right. Because I think as we read this, we're all like, yes, of course we would do this. But in the moment, sometimes it's really hard to recognize or to make yourself flip the script. So how would you do that? 
Well, I, and I don't know um, if you, if you do this, Julie, or you guys, you know, have this in here, but it's almost like, yeah. Do you want to come up with like a post game ritual, you know, rather than a a pre game ritual too. And I mean, I think for, for me, it's like, Oh, the big red flag is if I'm feeling miserable, (laughs) it's time to look at that situation practice, you know, as, as what, what you all are doing in here of showing up to these calls and listening to the classes that, that Julie teaches and her podcast and all of that is like, that is developing that, that self-awareness. And I think that, you know, we counteract the, the messaging in our culture of that, you know, yeah, self-discipline and, and, you know, the things that don't resonate, like if you felt yourself, you know, like, relax in that moment of, of giving yourself a break and, you know, recognizing that you aren't alone in, in whatever went wrong. If you, if you felt that physiologically, then, you know, like, yeah, probably need to do that more often. We're really, yeah. really hard on ourselves. Well, and the other thing that we have too, that is really common for us is that we don't do our sport alone. You know, there's tons of people around, everybody's, you know, taking their own turn in the ring. But when we come out, I mean, we talk about it as a peanut gallery, as other people, like there's, we've all had the experience where someone like runs up to you and be like, you know what you did there? And you know what you should have done? And, and like all of this other, you know, so Kim's like, oh my God. <laughs> right. And so there's also this, um, you know, everything from piling on to just one person, right. And everything in between of like, you know, in turn, cause when you thought of like post-ritual, I was like, yes, we have to talk about post-rituals. Like that's really important. But also there's just even the moments of like, you're trying to get your head on straight. And then you've got other people telling you, you know what you should have done. You really need to train that. How come you didn't do that? Why does your dog do that? And so I think there's a, there's a locking out of some of those other critics that you want, they're your friends, but also you kind of want to punch them in the throat at that moment. <laughs> like they're sort of like, so talk about that a little bit. It just in terms of like, you know, the, the, you know, the 50 people that are potentially around that, I don't know, like whatever, you know, oh, yeah. they love to tell you what you did wrong. God, I mean, that, is, that is tough. That's tough. It is. <laughs> I was on a, on a pock run. And, um, my dog hopped off the table and, um, as soon as I left the ring, someone come up, came up to me and said, that was your fault. You moved off the table or he wouldn't have jumped off. Wow. Wow. And that's not <laughs> uncommon. And I don't know if anybody, but that's not uncommon. I could give you 10 examples of random people saying stuff. People have good people. I know well, a coach who, you know, would say that instead of saying, Hey, you did this really well, too bad that you may have, you know, cued him off the table too soon or people I don't even know who've like come up and said, yeah, you, you know, you were really late on that blind cross. And that's why he, you know, went off course. What? Well, and we've talked about amongst ourselves and amongst other lessons, and it's probably time to have this conversation again, but like how we at least can be the examples of that. And instead of asking people like, oh, how was your run? Like, in other words, did you cue versus saying like, hey, are you having fun today? How's your day going? Are you, you know, are you having a good day or something like that? So, um, but yeah, this is a real, those are like real scenarios. And I'm sure everybody on this call has a version of a time where 
nobody asked, but you got advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's great. That's crazy. And I look forward to Julie, you and I can like dig into that deeper of what, you yeah. know, how to, how to help with that. Because yeah, I mean, I think part, there's a couple of things that came up for me of, of what to share. So like in the piano example, the total humiliation, um, like a mom really nicely came up to me afterwards, who I didn't know very well. And she said, thank you. Something like, thank you for showing my daughter how you can make so many mistakes and live through it. <laughs> like it was basically what she said. I thought I had no intention of being the example of living of through a train wreck. Yeah. Of living through being a train wreck, but I'm so glad it was helpful to her. And it, you know, it did help me reframe my, my own. So it's like, there are a couple things. I think that when they, when they say those things, like, right, like your inner critic can just go off to the races with that one of, I see, I yep. told you you sucked. I knew you sucked to go like, right. how can I socially distance myself from that? Um, take that in as feedback as, as neutral, not make it mean something about me personally, or, you know, this again, I don't have the perfect verbiage for this, but like, where's that boundary that you want to set for yourself. Like, yeah, I appreciate the feedback. I need a moment for, for myself right now, or what, you know, what can you do to take care of your yourself in that? There's a couple things like one, when we, when we do have a total debacle like that of any kind, right? Like if you have a car accident and you're replaying it in your mind and ruminating, it's actually a normal response that it's, that it's like ruminating because you, for the several hours after the particularly stressful event, what, what Kelly talks about in here is that your stress hormones are actually more receptive to learning and memory in that moment, because you don't want to repeat that, that situation again. So if you can look at it as like, okay, well, this is the time that I'm going to learn from this rather than I'm going to just torture myself with this over and over again. Like, what can I get out of it? And I'll just give you my internal, you know, since we're allowed to swear on here, I did not make a slide of this, but I call them the AFCO, another fucking learning opportunity where you're like, <laughs> there, there you go. There's my, my AFCO in all of this. You either think it to yourself or you go say it to, you know, part of your community here who get, or, or go, you know, vent in the Facebook group later to, to, to get that. But I want to just bring up, cause this is a really important piece. That's obviously, you know, the, the people, it sounds like perhaps they have possibly the best intentions or a really big ego of like telling you how to, how to do it. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Like they're just trying to help you learn and, and get better from it. Um, you know, there is the, so there's the excite and delight. There's the, you know, fight, flight or freeze. There's a whole bunch of different stress responses. There's also the tend and befriend, which is that oxytocin that one is available in your dog, like right there in that moment of connecting with your dog and recovering from stress. And what Kelly actually shares is that oxytocin is really good for your heart. So when you, when they talk about stress being bad cardiovascularly, like if you're never getting comfort from a, you know, that oxytocin, it's, it's you, the, the oxytocin actually makes your heart more resilient, um, in those stressful times. If that, 
makes sense. So to just remember, like it's available right here with this little ball of love, as well as, you know, with the humans who are more comforting in, in that moment and knowing what you need. So I hope that's, that's helpful, but that is a quandary. I hear you on that, on, on that one. Um, I will say, and I like on the, the topic. So as we've talked a little bit in here, and I just want to kind of wrap this up with, with this tool, which is a pretty robust tool. So I apologize for not leaving like more time for this, but it's really, as I said, like so much of this mindset is, is your interpretation of a, a situation. So if you take the person who says, I like to say, like says words to you after the event, it neutralizes it, right? Like if you say person criticized how I did, that's a, that's a more loaded statement. If you just say person said words, you know, all circumstances in life can be viewed through this neutral lens, right. Of, of just, you know, our thoughts about the situation aren't neutral. And that's where our opinion gets, gets into play. So, um, there is this tool that, that, uh, comes from this woman named Brooke Castillo, who's a coach and it's called the, the CTFAR model. And what she does is takes, you know, whatever thoughts you're having in your brain, your very human brain that comes up with all kinds of, of thoughts on any given time. There are other researchers who call them our ants, our automatic negative thoughts, um, takes them and neutralizes them and gives you a tool for replacing them. So again, this is something, it's kind of like the breath work. Like if you practice this outside of the, the ring, you can do this more on the fly, you know, as you're exiting the ring and someone's giving you unwanted feedback, if that makes sense. And maybe Julie, you can help me with this, with, um, a situation and we can do like an unintentional model and an intentional model, but I'll just explain. So the CTFARs, you basically write these letters on your paper, like, you know, vertically downward CTFAR, and they stand for circumstance, thought, feeling, action, result. So the circumstance is what you would prove in court, right? Like a factual neutral thing. Person said words after event. You're not saying whether they were critical or not. That becomes more of your thought. So then the thought are the sentences in your mind that you make up about that circumstance. It's the story that you're telling yourself about what just happened. And then the, the F is for the feeling. What feeling comes up in you? What is that physiological response, that physical response that comes up in that moment? Um, and then the, the A line is the action. What is the action that you take because you are thinking this thought and feeling this feeling this feeling. And then the result is that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, so it usually is um, very similar to what the thought you're having. Like me saying, I'm going to bomb this piano recital. The result is I bomb the piano recital, right? The neutral circum circumstances, piano recital, thought I'm going to bomb it, feeling total panic, right? Action, 
get up there and inner critic goes crazy, do it, try to play the song 8 million times until, you know, I, till it's too painful. We all have to walk away. Result is I bomb the piano recital. So the key to this tool is after the fact. So if you, if you're having a, you know, a run that you're analyzing and you're having a thought like I suck at this or I, this was terrible or whatever that, that negative thought might be that you then do a second model and you come up with a better feeling thought, right? So it might be, you know, you, you might not be able to go from, I suck to I'm a superstar. Like there might be, you know, some. Yeah. So let me jump in a little bit and make it uh, because Lizzie's taken me through this a number of times and I am much better at this now than I used to be. The first time she took me through it, I was like a train wreck. I was like, is that a thought or a feeling? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so it, it can be complicated, but I think that what makes this work, um, is like some of the things that are really powerful is almost even just even a line of this, because I think that like understanding for even, even the, like the circumstance, like making a mistake in the ring or someone saying words to you or, you know, anything that can happen or us freezing or, you know, what, what have you, um, that if we, if we parse that out, like that's always the word I use, we parse it out or we pull that thread out and we look at it just like as a circumstance, it's just as this neutral thing. And then, then we realize, well, the thoughts that we're having in the feeling is what gives it shape or a direction, right? Because to just make a mistake is just a mistake. If the world is not ending, you know, no one died. Like it just, it just was a mistake. It's what we put onto it through these thoughts and these feelings um, that really give it power and shape potentially in a direction we don't want to go. And so it's, to me, I, there's a lot of power in even just realizing that just even those first couple steps in realizing like, oh my God, I have wadded all of these things together into one mess. And rather than like, to pulling it apart, like, okay, like what is the thing that, that I'm upset about? No, no, no. What is the thing that happened? Now I can think of why I'm upset or why this matters. The other mistake that I always make in this, and Lizzie will laugh, but like the other mistake I always make in this is I always, when I was, especially when I was first going through it, I was like, well, what's the action I'm supposed to take so that I get different results? Like, I always want to fix it in like the first go through. And really it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, no, no, just sit with the, what you actually did. So like in the case of coming out of the ring, like the action I took was like, probably not like being a good poker face and making some face at this person who has this opinion of my, you know, whatever. And then that result is like, I feel terrible. And now I'm holding it against that person and my dog's not getting their treats and like, it's all going downhill. And, and, and so, but that's not how I want to be. And so when we look at this and we think about all these different things and, and the permission that I'll give you that Lizzie might not is like, go ahead and be messy with it. And let it sort itself out the first couple times um, if this is something you're drawn to. Because to me, there's just so much power in just pulling apart the situation and dropping them into these buckets. Because yeah. you can then get some space from it and be like, okay, it's just a thing that happened or a mistake that was made or a comment that someone made. I get to decide how I feel about it. I get to decide what thoughts I'm going to have and what action I want to take and what I, what I want, what I do want the results to be next time. 
Um, and so I think that that is empowering. Um, and so it might not be the perfect way that Brooke, you know, made it up and Lizzie intended for us, but it's really helped me because I think that this is a model that you could work on for, I mean, Lizzie, correct me, but like you work on this model for years. Um, but I think that there's a, some quick takeaways just at a first glance. Yeah. And I think it'd be like, I mean, if you, if you would be willing to give an example to apply it to like a recent or or just an impactful um, situation in in the dog world. I mean, that might be helpful to really illustrate it. I mean, I think that it's just what's, I agree with you completely and it can definitely be messy. What's so helpful is to notice when you take something as fact, like this was a terrible run or whatever that is and say, what's the neutral version of that? Like, this is what happened. And this is my interpretation. And there's a variety of interpretations of this situation. I'm choosing the worst one right here. And this is how it's making me feel. And this is what it's compelling me to do. And this is the result that it's having in my life. And so if I can just recognize that you don't have to believe everything you think and you can change that either on the fly or after the fact in like a post game ritual, it, it, it is really empowering. And to know too, that kind of like what Andrew Huberman was saying, and we think about like exercise to get in a better mood. Like, um, I think the way it was originally taught to me was, yeah, don't, don't take the action to change your thought, but it, but I, I disagree with that. Now I think that that breathing to get yourself in a better place or that exercise to get yourself. Sometimes there, there are things just to notice that they all influence each other and that you have some options in here of how you want to think and assess a situation after the fact, and that it might be more empowering to, to do it that way. Right. Like there are just some questions like, is my thinking based in fact, does this thinking, the way I'm thinking about this, help me achieve my future goals? Is it helping me feel the way that I want to feel? If it's not, do the CTFAR. If it is, great. Keep your keep your thought. Um, but so, yeah, would you be willing, Julie, to do like an unintentional and an intentional? Yeah, for sure. I just want to be mindful of time because I know that this can go a little bit. And I know that we're losing a couple people, which is fine. Yeah, we can skip it too. Um, so, um, yeah, I actually wrote a note for you and I to talk about it next week and think about how we can maybe take some people through this separately. And that could sure. be kind of a cool thing. So let's do that because I, I know that you've got some other things and I want to make room for questions. All right. So as I said, it's a little bit of an abrupt ending. Um, we went into questions after that. Um, but I hope that you enjoyed that very special episode. And I hope that maybe it intrigues you to take a look at the membership because that's the kind of great stuff that we do in the membership. Anyway, no matter what you're doing this week, have a great week with your dogs. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Mindset Coaching for Handlers podcast with me, Julie Bacon. I am so grateful for your precious time. I would love it if you found me on Instagram or Facebook at The Q Coach and let me know how it's going. I also offer a monthly membership that's perfect for ongoing support of your awesome goals. Check out theqcoach.com for details or just stop by and check out the blog and other free content. 
And finally, be sure to share, subscribe, and leave a review as it helps us podcasters tremendously. Plus, I know I get my best podcast recommendations from friends. Thanks and have a great week with your dogs.